Good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, would you turn in this morning to 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you can look in front of you, and the uh, pew Bible in front of you would be on page uh, 1212. That's an easy number to remember. Uh, make your way there. We're going to be in the New International Version uh, today, so if you want to use a phone or an iPad, that as well, U version is a good app to use to get yourself there. Uh, we are in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 today. Uh, we are in the series called In God We Trust. And as we look at this series, it would be uh, foolish of me not to acknowledge that this week we do have a national election and that there is a lot of unrest that is in our hearts this morning. Many of you are coming in here very nervous about what is going to happen this week. Some of you are very frustrated. You're saying, is my vote even matter? Does it, does it count? Does this whole electoral college process and all that went into uh, the primaries and all of that, does it, does it actually matter what the popular vote looks like or what we have to say? And it's a very frustrating spot to be in. But I'll tell you, there are other situations we could be in as well. In 2005, uh, my wife and I were in Romania on a mission trip. Uh, we were there. I was the youngest staff member at our church. I was a full-time college student. We had just purchased our first home. And, and I know some of you have heard part of this story before. I shared it a few months ago about just the nature of being really out of place in a new country on the first mission trip that I had ever been on. Uh, but as we've got there, uh, we had made our plans to go, and we uh, flew over, and, and we're getting getting engaged there. And, and the, the pastor, the missionary, picks us up at the airport, and he immediately takes us uh, to a restaurant. Now in our time, uh, we had about a six-hour uh, time delay, and so in our time, it was getting to be four, five o'clock in the morning. And so we were tired. We had spent, and if you've ever done the international flight where you go to sleep, and then they raise up all the windows, and they tell you, okay, now it's morning, and you're not really ready for morning yet, and you're trying to figure all of those things out. So we get there, and really, I mean, being about five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning in our timeline, we would hope to maybe have like a pancake breakfast or something like that. Like if he's going to take us out to a restaurant, that might be a cup of coffee and some pancakes or waffles would be what we were looking for. But instead what he gave us was a heavy cabbage and pork uh, lunch. And so that's what we lined up for. And we're in this uh, little confined uh, restaurant and, and we got this big cabbage dish coming along. And oh, by the way, we had just found out a couple of months, uh, maybe about a month previous, I wouldn't even say it's that long that my wife was pregnant with our first child. And so we had come across, flown across, and made her way over, and like no, no harm there. She was a little bit sick, but now she's, you know, first trimester, morning sickness, and we're sitting down to a meal of cabbage and like this awesome lunch, you know, that was being served to us. And what happened while we're going through that, there begins to be, this, this crowd starts to gather in the restaurant while we're there. So we're kind of in this back room that he had gotten a private room for us. And, but the bathroom that Erin uh, was going to have to make her way to numerous times during our meal together uh, was through this crowd. And at, at noon, their time, this crowd is starting to gather and it's getting louder and louder to the point where although uh, translation was a little bit difficult as it was, uh, we could no longer hear ourselves having a conversation at the table. And multiple times, awkwardly, my wife, then Aaron, would have to go through this crowd, kind of push her way through a crowd that's chanting and yelling different things, and go and vomit in the bathroom, and then push her way back through the crowd, uh, back to our table. And I'm awkwardly there sitting uh, with this missionary who doesn't think that my wife likes the food that he's offering. I'm trying to, well, it's not really that. It's, you know, it's morning sickness and all of this. He wasn't really getting what we were talking about. 
But this crowd really was starting to get out of, out of hand. And eventually we said, you know, you've got to tell us what's going on here. And he said, oh, well, that, that happens every year on this date at this restaurant. The crowd forms and they try to organize a riot to take over the government. <laughs> I was like, well, if you knew that, why did you pick this restaurant to take us to? And so legitimately, this is in Romania, legitimately in 1989, there had been a riot that had overthrown the government. And this was in 2005, so it's not that far removed. That They actually did believe that if they got enough people together, that they would be able to march and overthrow the government. And so this is the, the middle of this kind of chaos is what we're coming into. And so no matter what, I, I would have to say that their frustration was real, real. The problems that they had with their government was real. When we were there in 2005, uh, child poverty was at the highest rate in the world right there in Romania. And so they had legitimate things to complain about. The value of their dollar had, had tanked, and we'll talk about it for just a second. Uh, but they had legitimate things to complain about, and they were really frustrated, and they were really angry. And we think that we're really frustrated. We think that we're really angry. But I'll have to tell you, no matter what happens on Tuesday, no matter what happens, there will be no one trying to overthrow the government on Tuesday in the way that happens elsewhere around the world. We trust God has those things in control. And even if it did, even if Hillary or, or Trump, if one of them really started to try to amass someone uh, to get a crowd gathered up to take over the government, even if it did happen, would you be able to say, in God we trust, that he's got this under control? You see there in Romania, it continues to be. Uh, one of the, the, their currency is the weakest in the world. In 2005, it was the very weakest in the world, and they continued to have child poverty issues. It comes back to in 1889, they had established there in Romania that the gold standard would be the standard for the dollar bill, or for their lu, as they called it. In 1914, they began this upscale of what we know as World War I, and it was going on in that area, and they, they actually decided that they were going to abandon the gold standard because they needed more money to be able to go to war. And so if they didn't use the gold as their standard, then they could actually print more money and they'd be ready to go to war. And what happened was this inflation went absolutely crazy. In 1929, when our stock market crashed and we were at bottom, uh, the dollar in the U.S. was worth 167 lu. In 1947, under Soviet rule, uh, the lu was evaluated, reevaluated with no warning whatsoever. They just decided and they were forcing it in order to neutralize classes and establish communism in the area. They just erased what had been the previous dollar's value or the lu's value. And 20,000 of the old lu was now in exchange for one new lu. And in that process, as it started to happen, uh, farmers and blue-collar workers had a maximum that they were allowed to exchange of the old currency of 3 million to 5 million lu. That was the cap. That's as much as they could exchange. And so what that really meant in real dollars was that only 250 lu is what they were allowed to carry over. So no matter what they had previous to that, they now had at maximum $250 to their name. That was the nature of what was happening in Romania. It happened a third time in Romania in 1952, and then it happened a fourth time in July 2005, and we were there in August 2005 and knew nothing about what was going on until we got there and realized it. 
uh, they locked it in at a 10,000 to 1 ratio of this now the fourth generation of the Lou. It was at a 10,000 to 1 ratio. They had six months, though, to change it over. So as we are going through the streets and finding our way through the city, uh, there could be different prices, and you, you really didn't understand what it was. We literally called a pizza guy to come and, and come uh, deliver a pizza at our place, and the price of the pizza was either 175,000 Lou or... $17.50. Like the, the, the craziness of the skin, and then you could, you could sort of mix and match the dollars and put them together, and, you, and we had both currency there at the same time, and it was totally coming apart. On top of that, this was my first mission trip. It was the first time I'd ever gone to do something like this. My wife was with me. She was ill. She wasn't feeling well. And the church had sent me with $3,000 in U.S. cash to be able to take to this pastor there, over, over there. And so I had stuffed it into my underwear to go through all those things and all that uh, exciting times that you have when you're doing that. And on top of that, there had been a mix-up at the bank. And when I had actually checked out $3,000, they only gave me $2,000. So I had to run. It was at the close of business and knock on the door at the bank. And we had to get our dollars together and figure it out. And they gave me the money back. And so we go, and I'm walking into this country, uh, and I, I've honestly, I tried to go back through and work out the, I, I don't know, either I was carrying uh, 1.98 million of the old Lou, or I was carrying $198 of the new Lou, or, or maybe, I actually even figured out one way, I was carrying maybe 30, 30 million Lou. I, I, I like to assume that I was carrying 30 million, and I'd stuffed 30 million into my shorts, you know. Because uh, I won't get to do that again. Um, so all of this is going on. Uh, we have on our currency, we have it written on our currency, as we just saw in the open, in God we trust. And we have it written there because for some reason we think that the value of our dollar bill actually matters to God. Or in the Pledge of Allegiance we say, uh, in, in God we trust, we say in our Pledge of Allegiance we say one nation under God. Is it because we think that it matters to God? Or more accurately, it would be because we think that God is a good luck charm that is going to bring our nation good luck as long as we put his name on our currency and stick it into our pledge. Do we trust him for more than the value of a dollar bill? America, America, God shed his grace on thee. These are the words from the song, America the Beautiful, that many of you learned in elementary school, and I have sang it a number of times. If you ever needed grace as a nation, if, if we ever needed grace, the time is now. If we ever need salvation, the time is now. But instead of pointing fingers to everyone else, if you ever needed to understand what grace really is and what it really means, the time is now. Max Lucado says, grace is God's best idea. His decision to ravage people by love, to rescue them passionately, and to restore justly has no rival. If you're looking for the meaning of life, if you're pondering uh, the time that you've wasted on all insignificant things, it comes back to the idea that God answers the, the mess that we have in life with this one answer, and that is grace. He gives us grace to live this life through. Maybe we've overused the term 
uh, banks, we talk about having a grace period. You look at a dancer and say she was a gracious dancer. She danced with grace. Or maybe you have a hostess at a restaurant and say she was a gracious host. Or you go over to a friend's house and say that was very gracious of you to provide us dinner tonight. Or as a musician, we talk about even having a grace note in our music. We're overusing this term because we don't necessarily understand it. Max Lucado describes grace again as this. God's grace has a wildness about it, a white water, riptide, turn you upside down nature to it. Is that what you think about when you think about grace? He says when grace to grace happens, we don't receive a nice compliment from God, but we receive an entirely new being, a new heart. Ezekiel, the prophet, writes it this way, I will give you a new heart, says God, and I will put a new spirit within you. That's what biblical grace looks like. If you're a guest with us today, I should state the obvious. As we're talking through this message today, we're going to talk about money. And you're looking and you say, well, all you churches ever do is talk about money. Well, maybe. Uh, we're going to talk about it today, but we're going to talk about it from a different angle of what really grace looks like in regards to money. Because as we're going to this next season, as a nation, as America moves forward, what happens every year at this time is we get our priorities all out of whack in regards to money and the holiday season. And, all, and what happens is in January we look back and say, what just happened? And so we're going to be proactive about it and talk about money the way that God wants us to talk about money. And I hope that you find something here today, and you ought to find something here today. So I want to ask you this question to start. And if you're using the insert in your bulletin, you'll see that on this white sheet of paper. This is the first question that we want to ask. What if God's grace grabs your wallet? What if God's grace grabs your wallet? We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and Paul is writing to Corinth. He talks about his grace in this chapter. He's going to mention it four different times in this passage and in this chapter. And what happened earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, he had talked to them in Corinth and he had talked about raising funds to be able to help these other churches in the region that were in need. And now a year later, he is coming back to them because he's coming back with stories of the impoverished in Jerusalem and the church that needs help and needs assistance. And he says, Do you, you need to follow through with what you started. He said, when you said you were going to make an offering and gather money together and send it off, uh, we are counting on that. And so now he's writing this letter to say, why don't you follow through? Chapters 8 and 9 are very insightful also because chapter 8 deals with what was specifically happening in that time and in that area and that region with the Macedonians. But then chapter 9 gives us some universal principles that address us. And so we're going to deal with both of those things here this morning. We should see a much different picture here than we see anywhere else in the world of what giving really looks like. So let me ask that question again. What if God's riptide, flip you upside down grace grabs a hold of your wallet? The first point to fill in this morning, if you're filling those in with us, is that trials and poverty will not lead to stinginess, stinginess but to generosity. That's a fill-in for you. Trials and poverty will not lead to stinginess, but to generosity. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of every severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in what? Rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. 
and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then to the will of God also to us. Let me show the difference that grace is making. When you look here at those churches in Macedonia, you see them described in verse 2 that they are undergoing extreme poverty. They are in a lot of pain and trial, and what they are going through is as extreme as what is described here. The pain that they are in is real. The, The money that they don't have is significant, and yet they are the ones who are giving while they're undergoing severe persecution. We see in Acts when he goes and visits these churches that because they were under the Roman thumb, they were heavily taxed in this area, and so they were getting the pressure there. And then on top of that, they were overtly Christians, and so they were getting excruciating persecution that was coming on them, and yet and through that all, they were generously giving. So let's do the math then. Macedonian churches, severe trial plus extreme poverty equals overflowing generosity. That's weird. Severe trial, extreme poverty. You put those together, and that would be the recipe for joy and generosity. How do you get from those two elements to these two elements? The answer is found in verse 1 and through the rest of the chapter. It is grace. Once grace gets a hold of you, it changes the picture. What Paul is doing is writing to a letter to a church that is not as impoverished as Macedonia. This church in Corinth, they had things going on and there was stuff going on within the church, but financially speaking, or the position that they were in was not nearly as bad as what the Macedonian churches were going through. And he's saying, look at these brothers and sisters and look how deeply and how sacrificially they are choosing to give, even in the midst of their trials, even in the midst of their extreme poverty. It's a picture here. Not a picture that's supposed to make you feel bad or to feel guilty, but to look at the power of grace in the Macedonian church's life. You say, look at what the power of grace in their life was able to accomplish. What would it look like if that power was unleashed in your context? Do you see this? Last weekend we had a memorial service here as a church, and many of you came. Bob Wheaton uh, was here as a long-time, long-standing member of this church. And as we heard different stories shared about his life, one of them that stuck out to me was that he collected cans. He would go around and he would collect cans again and again and again so that he could get some money together with the cans and that he could then go out. I just checked with Miss Lori this morning. His favorite places were uh, Tim Hortons. He could get himself a cup of coffee because he was... Turning in, turning in cans. And you asked him why he did that. He said, well, financially, I don't want to be a burden to my family or there's things that we as a family would like to give to, but if I drink my coffee, it's going to keep me from doing that. Do you understand that? That's what the power of grace in someone's life says. You know what? I'm going to go and collect cans so that I can have my morning cup of coffee so that I can give the rest of it away. That's a legacy, folks. That's a legacy of grace being lived out. And when grace is being lived out, trials and poverty do not lead to stinginess, but generosity. That's what happens when God's grace grabs your wallet. Secondly, starting first will not be significant, but instead finishing strong. Starting first will not be nearly as significant as finishing strong. Let's jump down to verse 10, if you will. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also the first to have the desire to do so. 
Now, verse 11, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. He is talking about the value and the significance of finishing strong. If you've got kids and you've ever signed up for a 5K to run with your kids, how many of you have done this before? When that gun goes off, they take off like a rocket. The first 500 yards, they are sprinting, 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 and then you have to put them in the stroller and push them the rest of the way. Because they don't have a good understanding. Starting first is not what we're looking for here, is what Paul is telling those in Macedonia. Starting first is not the big deal. It is how will you finish? It's watching a back episode of Jimmy Fallon last night, and he talked about the New York City Marathon, so that you can come and do the New York City Marathon. Thousands and thousands of people come so they can then go home and tell all their friends that they finished in 2,113th place. It's not how you start the race. It's how you finish it. How foolish would it be to go and interview on their honeymoon about marriage? How foolish would that be? Hey, tell us how to live life together. Tell us what a marriage is like. And they're on their honeymoon and they say, it's great. And like, you are an idiot. Why don't you ask someone who's lived their life for 50 years committed to one another through extreme trial and extreme poverty, and they love each other, and they want to share every opportunity that they have to be together, and they share their meals together, and they finish each other's sandwiches. That's what's exciting. That's what matters is whether you finish strong or not. This month marks nine years ago. I was in a church plant in South Carolina, and there was a local high school football coach who was at the public school, but he lived his faith out for all to see, and he made his own life mantra to finish strong. And while we were there and while our kids were in his uh, football program, he came down with cancer, and just like that, seven months later, he was gone. But I just checked this week, asked a few friends, looked on their website, that football team's motto, their mantra, that school has even adopted is that they will finish strong. And finishing strong for Coach Farnham was a lot more than just finishing the football season well. It was in developing young men uh, to become young men and live their life in that way. It was to see Christ poured into individuals and see what the gospel does to change and saturate a region. And that's exactly what his legacy is continuing to do. Why? Because he put above all else, not how fast do we start, but how well do we finish. Will we finish strong? If God's grace were to grab your wallet, starting first would not be significant, but finishing strong. Next, surplus will not be stored away, but given away. Surplus will not be stored away, but given away. Jump to verse 13. Our desire is not that others might be uh, relieved when you were hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. 
The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. What we see in the book of Acts and what we see Paul demonstrating here for the people of Corinth, and he is uh, using uh, the Macedonians to ex- as an example, is to say, because they lived in community, they actually took care of each other. We just came out of a sermon series called Better Together. If we actually believe that we are better together, then that means that those who have more, have a surplus, are going to take care of those who don't. I'm not talking about government programs here. I'm talking about what a lived in community really looks like. The best example I can give you is a, a, a personal one. Uh, we have heard this message preached at a different time, and it was transformative. It was called the living giving principle. It was transformative in the way that we as a couple have lived out our lives, very specifically and very tangibly, uh, the way that God has blessed us and, and been a blessing to us through vehicles of all things. In 1999, I was in high school, I was about to graduate high school, and I had a fantastic little Plymouth Sundance. I mean, it was a gorgeous car. It was not a gorgeous car. It was a horrendous car. But I paid my $900 for it, and I drove it around in style. And then just before I started my senior year, I was able to trade that thing in, and this car that I had coveted driving back and forth down the street going by this car in 1991, Plymouth Laser. None of you have ever heard of it, and that's okay. <laughs> to me, it was a big deal. The Mitsubishi Eclipse is the same vehicle, if you've ever heard of that, and so I thought I was pretty hot stuff in my little sports car. I literally drove it and picked up my girlfriend at the time, Erin. We drove it. We went to a, a state park to go on a hike, and we got back in the car, the vehicle dead. It did not work anymore. I drove it less than 13 miles And I had sold off my previous car and and emptied my bank account because this was the dream, was for me to have this little car. And my parents, they they were gracious to me. My dad gave me a loan to be able to get the car repaired. And then a few months later, as I was beginning to make payments back, when I graduated high school, he said, we've decided to just let you have the car. You don't owe us anything. It was very gracious didn't need to do that. I was the idiot who sold a perfectly good car and bought a lemon because of the way that it looked, because of what I wanted, the status that came with that. But they did. It was very gracious of them. And so what started there was this idea of a living, giving principle just started to kind of be seated inside of me. A few years later, 2000 or 2001, I guess it was 2001 time frame, uh, there was someone that I was in the military with. He had a, a larger family, and like, it seemed like he had to pack up all of his kids in the minivan to bring them to work, and it just seemed like God was pressing on my heart, and I gave him the car. It was hard because I really liked that car because I basically bought it twice now. <laughs> I liked it that much. And I gave him the car. And at that point, I didn't, I didn't have any, I could get rides with people. It was just me. It didn't matter. And, and so we gave him the car, and I started, I ended up getting a motorcycle after that. And in the winters in South Carolina, it's not awful, but it's still pretty nasty in a rainy, cold night to ride a motorcycle back and forth. And over time, uh, my wife and I, we got married, and we did get a different vehicle. And, and I got a phone call in 2004. My grandfather called me up, and he said, you know, uh, you and your cousin, 
Uh, it seems as though God has called you into ministry, and ministry doesn't always provide everything you need. So I just want to help you with this. He said, whenever you're able, I was in South Carolina at the time, so whenever you're able, come to Florida. I've already worked it out, and there is a new car at this dealership uh, whenever you can pick it up. He called me on a Monday. I picked it up on Tuesday. My wife and I had literally spent the weekend bartering back and forth with a, a guy at a used car dealership for the vehicle that we thought we wanted, and he had pushed us to about 5% more than we were willing to spend, and we walked away. We said, you know what, this is not what we're going to do, and God provided it. Three years after that, uh, there was a family in the church that we were at. They called us up and they said, hey, we see that your family's growing. Uh, we've made a change in our lives. We have this minivan. If you'd like it, you can have it. We took the minivan, gave away the car that had been given to us to an, another uh, family in the church who's having vehicle troubles. Without going into all the details, all the steps along the way, I will tell you our family has been blessed to give away five or six vehicles. I've never been in a place to do something like that. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. But it's something that God has allowed us to do, and because of it, it has been an absolute blessing. So this morning, what I'd like you to do is reach down under your seat and feel around beneath there. No, I'm not giving away a car this morning. A new car! I wish I could. That would be fun. <laughs> now, I'm not sharing this today to pat myself on the back or what our family has done. I'm, I'm sharing it with you to, to, to show you, to demonstrate what happens when God's grace gets a hold of your wallet. When we allow his grace to motivate your decision making, all of a sudden it seems like there's endless possibilities what God can do in your life and in mine. It becomes a privilege to do so. This is your next fill-in. Giving will not be a burden, but it will be the greatest privilege. Giving will not be a burden. It will be the greatest privilege. Verse 6 of chapter 9, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. It says this, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give to what you have decided your heart to give, not reluctantly or compulsion, but because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So the picture is pretty simple. At the end of the day, a farmer goes in the field, he plants, and something grows. The concept is fairly simple. However much you plant is how much you should expect to get back. We know this. If you invest a small seed, a little seed, there will be a little harvest. But if you plant a great seed, there will be a great harvest. So that would be the picture with giving. But see, it's a little bit different here. Because uh, the picture here that God gives us is if we are generous and we are radical in our giving to others, the picture changes. Not only will there be... Uh, a har harvest that is large, it will be abundant in nature. We think the way our economics are, so to speak, we're thinking in the lens of what can I put into this and what will, will I get back out of it. But it's exponentially more when you realize that this is God's grace and powers the whole thing, that it's his resources that you are sowing, and it's his resources that are being harvested, and it's his resources that are going out and moving and changing, constantly replenishing the people of God as they give. Why does God sometimes give us 
more than we need. Why does God do that? Why does he choose to do that? Now, American answer to that question, even the Christian, we answer that question this way. God gives us more so that we can have more. That's really what it comes back to be. I've got more, so I'll start looking. Now I've got more, I'll start looking for a bigger house. Or we'll start looking for the additional car. I've, I've got more, so I need to get some nicer clothes. As the income goes up, must be the quality of living, the standard of living must automatically go up. And the reality is, the standard of living is probably living above our means almost immediately. We talked about this a couple weeks back. If you live in the zip code surrounding our church here, we find ourselves, the Mosaic, uh, Mosaic USA, it's a research group. They've delineated 72 subpopulations in, in the United States. And so you can't just refer to people as rich and poor, but there's 72 different categories to help delineate the different financial means of people here in the United States. If you live in this zip code, if you live in this region, in the United States, you are what is called the Platinum Prosperity Group. Guess what number that is? Group number two. The only one higher than that is called American Royalty. Other than that, we find ourselves in the richest, even within the United States, I'm not even talking about on a global level, here within the United States, we are in category number two of 72. Before I'm pointing fingers at you, understand that we just moved in, as I said a few weeks ago, uh, Brian and Mario and myself, we all live in this zip code, so we're just as loaded as you are. We're in the very top percentile. God gives us more than we need so that we can give away more than we have ever previously imagined because it is a great privilege to do so. Do you understand that? Do you believe it? As we've started this series, and I've talked to some of you, you said, this is a good series. It's, it's, it's driving me to do some things, but financially I'm not in a spot that I can do anything. Maybe not. But maybe get a context where we are in the rest of the world and understand, as we've talked about previously, if you have running water, if you have a refrigerator, you are way above the top 1% in the world. That's the reality of the globe, the planet that we live on. So what's the main point? What's the key? What if God's grace grabs your wallet? Here's the key. Generosity will not bring recognition to us, but to God. That's the bottom line. That's the key. And that's where we're going here in chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. He says, now he who supplies the seed to the sower, it's not even his seed that he's sowing. When he goes and plants, it's not his, it's God's. The seed to the sower and the bread for food will also supply and increase the storage of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. <coughs> you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through your generosity will result in what? What will be the result? Thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving to God. Here's the picture. God gives grace. People give generously. And God gets the glory. Did you get that? God gives grace, people give generously, and God is the one who gets the glory. So what happens when you and I, we are here in the wealthiest county in western New York, and we unleash that and know that there are different incomes represented here. We know that there's different people in this room, and we know that, but still, we are in the wealthiest region in western New York, and incredible wealth compared to the rest of the world. What happens if you and I in this culture go totally against the grain? 
and our culture and start living our lives in a way that looks biblically and practically at giving the best that we can. And say something like this, anything above enough I'm not going to store away and hold for myself, but I'm going to give it away for the sake of the gospel and the lost and the poor that are on this planet, for the church around the world. What begins to happen if we look at things in that way? We start thinking about the globe in that way. And the grace starts in our hearts changing us. As, as we learn the old man is gone, the new man has come. It starts to change and it starts to motivate our thinking. Now we are free to ask God for more. For lots of money. You didn't see this coming this morning, but I'm encouraging you this morning to make lots and lots and lots of money. Why? Because you are planting the seed then, if you're going about it, like to work hard and give away and give as much as you can and generously do that so that it will result in great thanksgiving to God. Because he is the one who gets the glory when that happens. When we have that approach in life, it's a process. It don't happen overnight. The change doesn't happen overnight. It's a process that starts to motivate us differently. And it starts to change how we live our lives. And just to be vulnerable with you this morning, this is something that Aaron and I realistically wrestle with on a regular basis. Looking at our finances, looking at our stuff, thinking about the house that we live in, and balancing the difference between what is a need and what is a want because of what all the other people in our neighborhood have. We have to wrestle through that. Are you willing to wrestle through that? Are you more likely just to go, well, because they have it, we need to have it. And God helps us balance that. I want to encourage you for the sake of the glory of Christ, let's not waste our lives on getting more stuff. Let's not waste our lives on pointing towards things that are not of eternal significance and of eternal value. What happens if you decide that you're, you're living, that you're making a living of $60,000 a year, and you say, you know what, I, I can live on less than that, or whatever that is, if it's 100000 or 125000 whatever that is, you say, this is what I need to live on, and the rest of this is surplus that I can give away and invest in the very glory and the kingdom of God. God has given me enough, now I give it to others. Because in God we trust for more than the value of a dollar bill. In God we trust for more than the value of a dollar bill. If you go back to chapter 8, verse 9, this is probably the crux of the passage. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Throughout this passage, the word grace is singular. It's always singular. It's, it's written that way every time that you see it, because it comes back to, it's implying that there's only one source for grace. There's only one source, and that is God. Jesus gave it all, and he gave it all for you. The Lord isn't after your money. He's after you. He's after all of you. 
And the reality is, is our checkbook and our schedules are a really good indication of where we spend our time, where we spend our talent, where we spend our treasure. We can evaluate things pretty well with how, how well are we giving it all back to God. So in order to follow him, you need to sign everything over to him. David Platt, he quotes a research project that was done at Stanford, and this is what they found. If church members in America gave at least 10% of their income in the church, this is just, this is members, this is a current membership of the church. In two years' time, the church could eliminate global starvation, global malnutrition, provide education for every child on the planet, and provide universal access to clean water and sanitation in two years. In the same research, we find that the reality is that only one-third to one-third one to one-half of people actually give anything as members of their local church. A dollar. They, they actually engage in any type of form of giving. That's, that's it. And when that happens, what happens is that it keeps the church from doing what God has called the church to do. But also as we look at the way that this passage lays out, it also means they don't understand the grace of God. I think that's the most important thing to get across this morning, the power that comes behind what we are trying to do. Now as a church, as Randall, we are trying to live this out in the best way that we possibly can. We are trying to demonstrate what it means to trust God and then give as much of it as away as you possibly can. And so in our budget, we have budgeted for more than 30% of our budget to leave this campus. 30% of every dollar that you give to this church goes out to serve in this world. And there's a number of different ministries that we partner with. It looks like education sometimes. It looks like discipleship sometimes. It looks like church planting sometimes. But in all of those ways, we are doing all that we can to be able to send that out. But we are also trusting that God is going to provide the seed. And that's where you and I come into place. So if you're a member of this faith family, if you're visiting with us as an attender, we certainly welcome you here. We wanted to point that out for me. We know that there are some guests with us here this morning. We also want to welcome you to look at what God is showing in his word. The reason why we're going to talk about giving this series in this morning is because God empowers us to do so. And you should be encouraged by his word of what he is really demonstrating for us. That this is a spiritual marker for you and in your journey. For some of you, this is old news. Some of you have heard this before. Some of you have been doing this for 50 years or more, and you need to grab someone and mentor them and walk through the process. This is what it means to see God come alive and show his grace in your life and in your giving. If that's the case, praise the Lord. Continue to do that. I hope that you're encouraged by today. I hope this picture of grace demonstrates what your life and your legacy has looked like. Others need to look and say, God, I need you to take over, transform my heart, as the prophet Ezekiel says. Give me a new heart and in my family. We understand this is not necessarily an overnight thing. There's all kinds of stuff that happens and takes place in our lives that we had to deal with that takes time. But you can come to the point and say, I want to be a grace giver. I want to come from a point of grace that this is what motivates me and drives me to make the decisions that I make. It's not, okay, here's a number, now do it. But no, this is what happens when a life is transformed by the grace of God. I don't want to spend my time, my life, my resources on stuff that will be wasted in the end. 
I want to spend my time and spend my finances, my resources on things that will matter in the end. I want my life, my finances, what I do to count for the glory of God. That's what it looks like when you and I trust in God for more than the value of a dollar bill. This morning, it would be foolish of us to talk about giving without talking specifically about the one who gave it all for you and for me. And probably the most familiar passage in all of Scripture, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he loved you and he loved me, that he did what? He gave his only son. Whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We need to remember that. We need to keep that into context. The grace that he showed. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. Yes, do that. But what does grace really motivate us to do? We need to remember that and what that looks like when we live it out. This morning we have a time of communion. And those who are communion attendees, you can come forward. Thank you. We have a time of communion that reminds us of that of that gift that he gave, that great gift and what he did when he went to the cross on your behalf and on mine. As we, as we look at that and we take a cup and we take the bread and we talk about remembering it, it ought to actually equip us and motivate us to do something for our lives to be changed. What Jesus intended by that was when you have a meal together, this would be a reminder when you drink and when you eat, this would be a reminder of the sacrifice that he's made for you. And so therefore, when you leave that meal, you leave it differently than you arrived. As a church, we, we share in what's called open communion, meaning if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we want you to engage. We want you to be a part. We want you to share in this meal together. If you know who Jesus is, we practice a dry communion. It's grape juice. It's all okay, but we want you to participate and understand the great gift that Jesus gave us. And our response then is to give as well as we possibly can. And so as we move there, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul also gives us the example there. And he gives us the, the writings, the words of Jesus. And in my Bible, it's a red letter edition, so I see in red letters here what Jesus said. In 11, chapter 24, he said this. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said. And so we'll start this morning. We'll start with the bread. We'll hand it out. It'll make its way down the aisles to you. And in a moment, we'll take it and we'll break it together. And we will share in the great gift that God has given each of us.